I'd like you to invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to read verses 10 to 15 as we continue our study in this letter. I do want to add my encouragement that if you have not taken the Rod and Staff Biblical Counseling training, um, it is of great benefit. It is primarily of benefit to think about life and think about our own lives, our own problems, our own suffering, our own trials through the lens of Scripture. And that is the goal. And the speaking to one another those things in many ways just flows out of the conviction of our own lives. And so I would encourage you to, to, to sign up for that. Second Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. This is what the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. You, however have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to You in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have no other name in which to stand and make requests of You, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, no other name which lies at the heart of Your sacred writings that we might be able to be wise unto salvation. And so we pray today as we look at Your Word, that Your Spirit will work among us. Lord, that You would guard my lips, that only truth would emerge from them, that You would open our ears and our hearts, that we might hear and believe and love and live according to what You say in Your Word. And we pray it for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The call of God on His people, from beginning to end in the Bible, is a call to be holy, to be distinct from the world around them. After God rescues His people from slavery in Egypt, He says to them this in Exodus 19, "'You shall be My treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is Mine.'" And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
Then through Moses, God gives His people His law to teach them how to live as holy people so that their religious practices, their religious lives, and their civil society are ordered by God so that they are distinct from the nations around them. Now, if you know how the story goes, you know that Israel does not live as a holy people as they ought. They fail to keep God's law. They fail to be holy. Sin's power, the sin that had condemned the world, is not broken because you can't break the power of sin by obeying the law. It just doesn't work that way. You see, just as the Israelites had been in physical slavery in Egypt, their souls and the souls of all mankind are in spiritual slavery. And freedom from that slavery is beyond their ability and beyond our ability. It only comes through Jesus. So God sends the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel was meant to be a holy nation, and Jesus is the true Israel. He is the Holy One. He is truly God and truly man, perfect and righteous, tempted in every way, yet without sin. And even though He sets for us a perfect example of what it means to live as a distinct person of God, He didn't merely come to set an example. He came to make a sacrifice, the sacrifice of Himself on the cross, the righteous one in place of us, the unrighteous ones, the holy one in the place of us, the unholy ones, to pay the debt that sin incurs and forgive all who would trust in Him. If you would trust in Jesus, He will forgive you. He will not look at your faith in Him and say, oh, no, 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 that's not good enough. You see, God has said that all who believe in Jesus will not face everlasting punishment, but will be saved. Have you trusted in Jesus? Are you free from the slavery to sin? Have you been set free? Jesus said, you remember what Jesus said, whom the Son sets free, He is free indeed. You may know yourself to be in bondage even now. You may feel yourself to be on a treadmill of trying to be better, of trying to overcome your bad with your good. Well, I'll tell you, friend, it ain't never going to work. You can't be good enough. But if you'll trust in Jesus... He'll take you off the treadmill and set you on the rock, which is Himself, and there you will be secure forever. And all those who trust in Jesus, who turn to Him in faith, are God's people today, and we are called, as God's people have always been called, to live as holy, distinct people. So 1 Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. And this call, this call to be holy, to be distinct, it never changes. Do you know 
that, that many of you who may be graduating high school, going to college, or you may be out of college and you're in a job that you know you don't want to be, the last job you ever do, you know, and you're looking for what you're going to do, you may be asking a question like, what is God's will for me? Well, I can tell you that no matter where you work, no matter who you marry, no matter where you live, no matter what your income is, no matter whether you even never get married, God's will for you is to be holy. This is God's will for you, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, your sanctification. And that is not dependent on your job, on your spouse, on your income, on your locality. It rests in the work of Jesus. That call never changes. When the Christian ethic is publicly embraced and when it is rejected, we are to live as holy people. Whether Christianity is celebrated or mocked, we are to live as a distinct people. Whether it's a season of peace or a season of difficulty, we are to live as distinct people. Whether Christians are praised or persecuted, we are to live as distinct people. We are to be faithful to that call to follow Christ. So that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul makes it clear that Timothy's going to face times of difficulty. You remember that from last week? Look at it. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. But there's nothing about the difficult times, Timothy, that changes the call to live as a distinct man of God, to be faithful to Jesus. Nothing changes that, and nothing changes it for us either. And so what Paul tells Timothy in these six verses that we're going to look at is this, stay faithful to Jesus in this dark and deceptive world. Stay faithful to Jesus in this dark and deceptive world. First, let's think as we look at these verses about the contrast of faithfulness. Faithfulness to Jesus stands in contrast to the world. Did you know that? On the basketball team that you play in, if you play in a rec league, uh, at your workplace, in your neighborhood, sometimes at your family reunion, faithfulness to Jesus stands in contrast to the world. It has always been that way. To think that we can be faithful to Jesus and completely accepted and embraced by the world is to believe a delusion. It is simply not possible. Because there may be things that the world very much appreciates about this or that that Christians do, but when it comes down to it and the message of the gospel becomes clear, this confronts the soul. And as we all know from having been there, nobody just says, please confront my soul. Tell me how wrong I am. Tell me how I'm going to spend eternity separated from God in everlasting torment. Please tell me more. Nobody does that. And yet the call never changes. We have to stay faithful. And so we think about this contrast. And there are two phrases that really point to it. They're at the beginning of verse 10 and the beginning of verse 14. In verse 10 it reads, You, however, at the beginning of verse 14, it says, But as for you... You can't see it there, but in the, in the original language, in the Greek text, those two phrases translate the exact same Greek words 
which is su-dei, but you. This strong contrast to what comes immediately before it. So you'll remember last week in verses 1 to 9 in chapter 3, we saw the darkness of the world around Timothy, how it even shows up in the church and it puts on the appearance of godliness. We thought about how there was growing deception. There were these characters who were um, taking captive the weak women in Ephesus with their appealing yet destructive messages. And so, in contrast to that, okay, darkness and deception swirling all around Timothy, Paul says, Sue Day, but you. Timothy's life stands in contrast to those false teachers, to all the darkness that is there. And then look at verse 13. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul speaks of evil people and imposters. Now, the word evil there is actually used multiple times just for the devil himself, the evil one. These devilish folks and their imposters, they're con men. They've got big smiles and smooth talk while they take you for everything you have. And these guys are going to flourish. In contrast, first of all, to the persecution of of verse 12, everybody who wants to be faithful in Christ will be persecuted. What's going to happen with the evil people and the imposters? They're just going to go on from bad to worse. They're going to keep going. They've got this path that they're on, and they're going to keep going and keep going and keep going. Verse 14, but you. You see, they're going deeper and deeper into darkness, into deception, but you, Timothy. But you, Gray Road. You continue in a different direction altogether. You see, the life of faithfulness, just these two words in verse 10 and in verse 14, these two words remind us that a life of faithfulness to Jesus is lived in contrast to the world. It is being the light of Christ in a dark world. It is being committed to God's truth in a world that believes lies, in a world that takes God's revelation of what is wrong and says, no, 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 that's right if it's really how you feel, and takes what God's revelation says is wrong and says, no, 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 it's what is right and says, no, 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 that is, that is wrong because, I mean, the Bible's out of date. That is so restrictive. Even some in the church world say what, that, that claim to be Christians that, that, that are in the, in the mainstream of, of the church say that we need to keep up with the times, that, we're, that we need to keep up with the evolving society, that the message of the Bible needs to be reshaped, redefined, rewritten for a new age. Well, John Stott saw that same thing, and he wrote this, To be sure, the church of every generation must seek to translate the faith into the contemporary idiom, to relate the unchanging word to the changing world. But a translation 
is a rendering of the same message into another language. It is not a fresh composition. We do not need to throw out the Bible and start with a blank piece of paper and begin to write something new for the world. God has written it all down for us, and we stand in contrast to the world when we say that. You understand? You are ridiculous to your unbelieving friends when you say that words, some of which were written almost 4,000 years ago, govern your life today. What it means is, Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What it means is 1 John chapter 2, do not love the world or the things in the world, for the things that are for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Do you see the contrast? But you. There's all this darkness and deception, Timothy, but you. Evil men and imposters are going to keep flourishing, but you. I wonder if someone were to take a look at our lives. I wonder if someone were to take a look at your life, the way that you think and the way that you speak and the way that you act and the way that you date and the way that you approach your job and the way that you act in your family and the way you respond when someone wrongs you. And I wonder if they were to look at all of that if they would look at you and come to the conclusion that your life is pretty much like everybody else's life in the world. Except, well, you know, you go to church on Sunday. Or I wonder if they would look at all that and conclude that your life stands in stark contrast to the way the world operates. Just think about that. What would they say? What conclusion would they draw? Because we are meant to be distinct people, holy people, set-apart people. Christians are meant to live in contrast to the world, faithful to Jesus, su day, but you. But not only do we see the contrast of faithfulness that Paul points to, but we see the call uh, to faithfulness. The contrast of faithfulness and then the call of faithfulness. The call actually comes in verse 14, but it doesn't come out of nowhere. You see, look at verse 14. It says, continue in what you have learned. But it doesn't come out of nowhere because, first of all, as this paragraph begins, Paul basically says to Timothy, you have been faithful. You have been faithful. Look at verse 10 and 11. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. See, the fact is, is that Timothy's been following Paul for quite some time now. It could be upwards of a couple decades that that Timothy's been around Paul. He's heard him teach. He's watched him minister. He's learned from him. He's traveled with him. He's spent a good deal of time with him. So nothing on, what Paul is saying is nothing on this list is actually unfamiliar to you. 
You've followed all of this. You know it all. You've walked alongside me. you followed in my footsteps. And it all starts with his teaching and his conduct. His teaching, Paul says in Acts, is the whole counsel of God, which centers on Christ and him crucified. And his conduct, well, he reminds the Thessalonians of his conduct in 1 Thessalonians 2.10, you are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. His message was faithful. His life was faithful. Then he lists these other characteristics here. What, the, this, the rest of this list can basically be broken down into two, uh, two things. The first is Paul's character. So he talks about my aim in life, his resolve, his dedication to do the work of the Lord. He talks about his faith, not speaking of his faith in Jesus. The word is better translated faithfulness. So speaking of his faithfulness to Jesus, his faithfulness to the work that Jesus gave him, his love both for the Lord and for those he served with and for those he served. And then these other two characteristics, he says, uh, my patience and my steadfastness. Those are very similar words, okay? Both have to do with enduring, but here's the basic distinction. Paul says he's been steadfast, meaning he's endured really difficult situations. And he's been patient, meaning he's endured really difficult people. And he says, you see this. You followed in my footsteps. But not only Paul's character, but Paul's experiences, his persecutions, verse 11, and sufferings. Now, these sufferings at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, these happen in Acts chapter 13 and 14. So if you want to make a note of that in the margin, that's what he's referring to. Uh, in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are actually sent out from a city called Antioch, and they come to another city called Antioch. You know, you can go to Paris, France, or you can go to Paris, Tennessee, all right? You can go to Athens, Greece, or you can go to Athens, Tennessee. You can go to Peru in South America, or you can go to Peru in Indiana. I don't understand how it, became, how it came to be uh, uh, pronounced that way. The mysteries of linguistics are sometimes just things you'll never really get a hold of. But uh, that's essentially what happened. They left Antioch, and they arrived at Antioch in a region called Pisidia. And what happens there is that they go, they preach, and everywhere they go, people are being saved. The people are coming to faith in Jesus, but it's not it's not just that that's happening. It's, it's actually quite difficult because they get to Antioch and the people in power lead the charge to drive Paul out of the city. So they go to Iconium. And at Iconium, there's an attempt to stone Paul. There's a conspiracy to stone him and the plot is figured out and it's avoided. So they go on. They arrive at Lystra. And everything's okay there until do you know what happens? The mad people in Antioch and the mad people in Iconium take a field trip to Lystra, and they end up stoning Paul, injuring him so badly that he seems dead as he lays there on the ground. And Paul's saying, you know all about this, Timothy. You followed it. You heard about it. You saw more than that. But you know what's incredible? After all of that, do you know what Paul does? 
He does not retire from missions work. He goes back to Antioch, to Iconium, to Lystra, because there are people who have believed in Jesus and he needs to teach them and encourage them and strengthen them. And do you know what he encourages them with? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So he used his experiences to teach a general truth about suffering, and he actually does the same here. He mentions those experiences, and then he, teaches, then he, then he says this general truth. Verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I mean, what fellowship does lightness have with light have with darkness, right? What, what companionship does Christ have with the devil himself? How could we possibly think that anything other than this will be true? That's why Jesus made clear to his disciples he didn't want them to get the wrong idea when they started to be opposed. So in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are you when people revile you and say all manner of things about you for my sake. Blessed are you. Your reward in heaven is great. It's interesting. In another place in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Look, if you pray so that people will applaud you and you give so that people will applaud you and you fast in such a way that everybody sees how much you're suffering while you fast. Yes, there is your reward. The applause of men for your prayer. Oh, what a great prayer warrior you are. There's your, there's your reward right there. Oh, what a generous giver you are. There's your reward right there. And so he wants them to know that, look, there's a greater reward than that. And it's not going to echo the applause of people here. It's going to come in contrast to the persecution you suffer here. Timothy's been faithful. He's followed Paul's example in character. He's followed Paul's example in suffering. He says there at the beginning of verse 10, you, however, have followed I wonder as you think back on your own life, whose example have you followed? I just wonder, who is it that has taught you what it means to serve and suffer for the glory of God? Do you know that others are likely watching you? Do you live in such a way that if other people followed you, they would be serving and suffering for the glory of God? If other people followed and did what you did and said what you said and thought what you thought and responded on Facebook the way you respond on Facebook and tweeted what you tweeted and did all of that, do you, would they be, would they be serving and suffering for the glory of God? Now, why does Paul say all this? He doesn't list all of these characteristics to exalt himself. He, lit, he does it to encourage M Timothy. It is, it is the, the point is, Timothy, you have followed my example. You've been doing this. Faithfulness in a dark and deceived world is not new to you, Timothy. You've been there. You've done that. You've got the T-shirt. You have followed. And the second thing he says is you must be faithful. So not only you have been faithful, you must be faithful. And this is where we get to the command in verse 14. The only command, by the way, 
in the entire paragraph. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Continue. Continue. It's the same word Jesus uses in John 15 when he speaks to his disciples and says, Abide in me. Stay here. Remain. Keep going. Stay the course. Stay steady. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Now that stands in contrast to the the women back in verse 7, doesn't it? They were always learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth. But Paul says to Timothy, you have learned and you do know. So don't deviate it. Don't start thinking there's something beyond what you've learned, better than what you've learned. Don't look for something new. Stick with the old, old story of Jesus and His love. Stick with biblical truth. Stick with the revelation of God in the Scriptures. Because here's what you know, Timothy knowing from whom you learned it. You know the character of the ones who taught you. Now, Paul, this is plural, this whom here. He's probably talking about his mother and grandmother that he mentioned in the first chapter, but he's also referring to himself. You know the people who have taught you this. And then keep going, verse 15, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. You know the character of what's being taught, Timothy. These aren't just writings. They are sacred writings. They are set apart for God's purposes, just like the temple. Same word, same kind of word. Sacred writings, the holy temple, or the holy priests set apart for God's purposes. And Paul's saying God's given us writings, these words on pages to accomplish His purposes in our lives. Now, we will get to that in full next week. I'm just going to leave that there, but Timothy should keep all of that in mind. Keep in mind who taught you. Keep in mind that these are sacred writings and continue in it. Continue to believe it. Continue to obey it. Continue to teach it. Cray Road, we have to be a people of the book. That's why we would bring in Rod and Staff to do something like biblical counseling training. We don't just throw the word biblical in there to try to attract a certain number of people. It's because we want to see and solve the problems of life God's way. And God has told us how He sees life, how He wants us to walk through everything that we will walk through in this life. There is nothing that we will walk through that God's Word will not equip us for. Nothing. That's why we teach the Bible the way that we do. Because the thing that you need to walk out of here understanding is not what I think about anything. What you need to understand is what has God said. What has God said? So, we must continue in it. These Sacred writings, they reveal our glorious God. They show us our sinfulness and our need for Christ. They teach us who Jesus is, why He came, and what it means to follow Him. They promise final justice. They promise final salvation. They give us hope in suffering. They give us joy in the trials of life. They give us peace in chaos. We have to be a people of the book. 
Think of all that you're throwing away if you're not someone who is a person of the book. Continue in it. Cling to it. Don't let it go. Why? Well, look at the last half of verse 15 here. These sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ or in Christ Jesus. Now, <laughs> no commentary that I have on 2 Timothy addresses this. Not MacArthur, not Calvin, not Mounts, not any of the six commentaries that I'm using going through this series say anything about this so I know I'm out on a limb, but I need your help. All right? You ready for this? I just want you to walk through this. I want you to answer a series of questions out loud. Can you do that? Out loud. First question, who is this letter written to? No, you got to be louder because my ear, your masks are muffling your answer. All right? Who is this letter written to? Timothy, who's followed in Paul's footsteps? Who's followed his example? Timothy, who should continue in what he's learned? Who's acquainted with the sacred writings? Now, this is not a trick question. Who will be made wise for salvation by these sacred writings? Boy, you got confused there, didn't you? Let me lean in and just tell you. Let me whisper something in your ear. You see that little Y-O-U in verse 15, able to make you wise? It's singular. Does it have implications beyond Timothy? Absolutely. But one of the keys to studying the Bible accurately is to understand it in its context with its original audience in mind. Originally, this wasn't written to the church at Ephesus. It wasn't even written to the elders in Ephesus. This was written to Timothy that Paul had stationed in Ephesus. So knowing that, that it is singular, Paul's writing to Timothy. Now that seems very basic, doesn't it? But it makes a huge difference in how you understand this. Now is it true that as Timothy continues to preach this word, stay in this word, that people will be pointed to Jesus because Jesus is the focus of the Scriptures in total? Yes, that is absolutely true. But Paul's talking here to Timothy, saying Timothy will be made wise for salvation. Now, doesn't that seem odd to you? This means yes, this means no. Does that seem odd to you? It seems odd. I mean, don't you want to ask, now, isn't Timothy already a Christian? Isn't that a question that just comes up in your mind when you hear something like that? Well, yes, he is. But in the Bible, the word salvation covers a lot of territory. Now, this may sound familiar to you, and it will help us. We speak of salvation with three verb tenses, right? I have been saved, meaning I've been given new life by the Holy Spirit. I've come to faith in Jesus. I have placed my trust in Jesus Christ. I have been saved. 
We also say, I am being saved, meaning I am being saved from the power of sin. I am growing in holiness. I am growing in Christ. I am growing in faith, growing in obedience. And we also finally say, I will be saved because I will be saved ultimately from the presence of sin. There will be no sin whatsoever as part of our experience in heaven. Can you at least say amen to that? Sin will be nowhere, it will be nowhere to be found. You look under every rock on the new earth, it ain't going to be there. All right? I have been saved, I will be saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. But here's the thing. All of that together is salvation. We tend to divide it up, right? Now, in part, that's helpful because we want to understand what God is doing as we come to faith and as we grow in Christ and what will happen at the end. But all of that is salvation. And here's the thing. Though we divide it up, the Bible doesn't. You either have all of salvation or none of it. Did you hear that? Just wrap your mind around it. Salvation is not just a one-time experience at a VBS or by the bedside with your parents or at a special event, as wonderful as those moments of conversion are. Salvation in a person's life is the full work of God from beginning to end. The gospel is not something you can have one day, leave it behind the next day, and expect to save you on the last day. That is not a possibility. The gospel, if it slips through your fingers, friend, it means you never really had it. 2 John verse 9 says this, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching, abide, remain, that's the same verb, continue, does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. That's serious, isn't it? Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Let me read from Colossians 1. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now, Christ, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith. Continue in the faith. The faith. So Paul is saying that continuing, he's saying, Timothy, he's grabbing him by the shoulders, he's looking him right in the eye, says, Timothy, continuing in the faith is necessary because though salvation is secure in Christ, it is not complete yet. Isn't it interesting in 1 Timothy, do you know what Paul tells Timothy? He says, keep a close watch on your life and your doctrine, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's interesting, isn't it? The one who's convinced of the truth is up there preaching, and it's part of this salvation. 
Put in other language, when he's saying continuing in the faith is necessary, he's saying working out your salvation with fear and trembling is absolutely necessary. Now, he's not saying that persevering in the faith is a means of gaining salvation. He's saying perseverance is evidence that you have salvation. It's evidence that God has truly changed you. Jesus doesn't keep… He doesn't hold me fast because I held Him fast first. The only way I hold Him fast is that He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. So on a practical level, when you're looking for assurance of your salvation, do not look in the rearview mirror to look backwards, to remember that one time that you prayed or that one baptism that you walked through or that one time you professed faith. No, no, no. The Bible wouldn't… though Those are wonderful to look back on, aren't they? Don't you remember when you came to Christ? It's a glorious day, wonderful day. But the assurance of salvation is not primarily grounded there. It's primarily grounded in the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and in our experience, not looking in the rearview mirror, but looking in the mirror, and saying, am I actually, do I, not just do I, did I profess faith back then, but do I possess faith now? Am I persevering in the faith? Am I trusting Jesus now? Am I continuing in what I have learned and have firmly believed? This is such an important text for us today. Because I've been, in, I've, I've, I've been there, I've been around it, but there are churches today where the, the, the plea, the plea is for this one-time decision. The plea is that you would pray right now, and Lord, I would want all of you, if you are not believers in Jesus, to turn to Him right now. But the aim is at this one-time decision and this one baptism, and then we hope you grow in Jesus. But the aim of the church, Paul's aim, is to present everyone complete on the day of Christ, which doesn't mean one thing. It means a whole life of salvation. I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. And so the call on Timothy is to be faithful to Jesus, to live in contrast to the dark and deceptive world around him, to heed the faithful call, the call to faithfulness, because while he has been faithful, he must be faithful. Keep going. Stay on the path of faith. That will take you home to heaven. And the call is the same for you and for me today. Continue, Christian. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel because the Scriptures that you're clinging to are able to make you wise for salvation. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. Grace has brought us safe thus far. And grace will lead us home. Grace will enable us to continue. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you, recognizing our absolute dependence on you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. 
Lord, we pray that we would be a people who live in contrast to the world around us, not to seek to demonstrate moral superiority or anything like that, but rather that people would see the light of Jesus Christ to glorify You in this world, and that would be faithful to the call of to be faithful, to not lean on past faithfulness, but to continue in what we have learned and have firmly believed. Give us grace that will lead us home on that path. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.